Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. We're in our, our Christmas series, and we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We'll look at a passage. I, I believe this. I believe this clearly, that, that God is going to speak. When we come to God and we're expectant and our hearts are right and we just say, God, speak, God is going to speak this morning and we want to hear from him. You don't want to hear from me, believe me. You don't want to hear from me. We want to hear the Holy Spirit speak this morning. So Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to ask you when you uh, get that, if you just stand to your feet and we'll look at this together. I'm starting in verse 1, and so just follow along as I read. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Was the, uh, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the, was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jeroam. Jeroam was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at the time of exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above included 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from then from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 more from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Let's pray. So, Father, we, we thank you for your word, and uh, we're grateful for your word, Father. And uh, what I'm asking this morning, Holy Spirit, is that you would reveal the Father to us, that we would see the Father, his character, his nature, that you would reveal something new, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear what it is you have for us. Do this in a way that glorifies only you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I don't know if it was you. Was, was it the whole room? Did, did you feel it when I was reading? Did you just... Because there for a moment, did you see my hand start to come up here? Do, do you know what that means? That, that, I think that means I'm thirsty. Is that what I mean? I'm thirsty. I'm learning that now. Amos. 
But we read passages like this, and we, what is that? I don't trust this whole, this whole little group of people. Yeah, that scares me up here. This, yeah, this whole group. And so, but we read passages like that, and we're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, why do we have this passage? And I think one of the reasons, and we have to, we have to acknowledge this distinction, is that all scripture, and I mean all scripture is equally inspired. All scripture, every bit of scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That passage we just read is clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. But having said that, we have to recognize that, that all scripture is not equally applicable. And so we read passages sometimes, we're like, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to? And, and I just want to just, just ask you, invite you, just hang with me this morning. I actually believe God has something very significant to say to us about who he is, about his character. Who is this God? What kind of God? And, and I'll repeat this, and I've said this a million times. You have to remember this, that the ancients all believed that God, or what they might have said as the gods, were mean and petty and angry and just looking to zap folks with, the, with a lightning bolt. And so one of the things that we're going to get here at the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew's Gospel is, what kind of God is this? Who, who is this God? So look at your Bibles. Matthew 1, verse 1, it says this. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Now remember this when you read it. Who's the writer? The writer is Matthew. All the four Gospels have different writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all wrote to, to slightly different audiences with different intentions. They all tell the same story, but they give different emphases. That's why sometimes... A particular gospel writer will tell this story and not this, or tell more of this. Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience. That's more of his intended audience. And we said that last week. We know that because when you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than anybody else. He quotes the prophets more than any of the other gospel writers. Okay, writing to a Jewish audience, he says the name David and Abraham, and smack, he's got everybody's attention. David, David, our greatest king, the greatest king in Israel's history is David. Blam, eyes are open. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Listen, Abraham, if you're a follower of Christ, is our father. Abraham is our father. But writing to a Jewish audience, he just got their attention. But he says this, it's the record of the ancestors. This is the ancestry. We're going to look at the family tree of Jesus. And he says, Jesus the Messiah. And so again, the question that they would be asking and wondering is, well, what kind of Messiah? What is this Messiah like? Most of the Jews were confused because most of the Jews believed that the Messiah would come and liberate them from Roman tyranny that they were living under. And so that was a big part of their thought, is that we're going to have this, this Messiah who's going to deliver us from the Romans. The real question is, is that right? What kind of of Messiah is this? And I'm just telling you, you got to open your eyes and you got to just hang with me because he's going to reveal a different Messiah than they would have been thinking. And I think even sometimes a different Messiah than what we think. So then he goes to verse one or two and he says, Abraham was the father of, Jake, of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So we start out with this lineage. We know Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father of our faith. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. And then you don't have to go much further. You just get into verse 3 and something very interesting. He says, Judah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. One of his sons is Judah. Judah, then he tells us, is the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, a Jewish reader would have stopped instantly. They live in a patriarchal culture. It's a patriarchal culture. Sorry, women, you were very insignificant. You, you wouldn't really go to mention a woman in a genealogy, in a family tree. Why? Because she's a woman. 
Look, think of it this way. We know that Jesus' mother was Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. uh, Joseph was his earthly father, but wasn't his, his biologic father. And yet, Jesus had to come through the line of David. We know that. It was prophesied. Jesus would come through the line of David. Who was from the line of David? Joseph or Mary? Joseph. But Mary is the only biologic parent. But why wouldn't they mention it was Mary? Because it's a patriarchal culture. So when you understand that he's writing to a patriarchal culture, and had you been a Jew, you would have seen, why would they mention the mother? Well, in order to get that, you'd have to understand who Tamar was. And some of you understand Tamar. But let me just give you a little clue. This is the question. Who is Tamar? So let me give you a little of the background on Tamar. And this stuff gets very interesting. We knew this. We have Abraham has Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah. Now, Judah is not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn. But Reuben, who was the oldest son, was disqualified because he was a very immoral man. Then you had Simon and, 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 uh, and, and Levi, Simeon and Levi, and they were disqualified because they were such harsh and cruel individuals. So Judah is actually the fourth son, right? And yet the lineage goes through Judah. Okay, keeps moving on. Judah then has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, you need to understand a couple things, and one of them is you need to understand how Jewish inheritance happened. It's not just Jewish. It's a lot of the the ancient Near East, and the way that the inheritance works is this. He's going to split up the inheritance, and all the kids will get a share. The oldest son gets a double share. So the math here is really, really easy. You have three sons. You split your inheritance into four. This one gets two-fourths or half, and these each get a quarter, right? So this one got twice as much. So that's the way the inheritance splits up. Well, Ur is going to go get married, and Ur's wife name is Tamar. Ur's wife name is Tamar. Now, there's another thing. You need to understand inheritance, but you also really need, for this story, you have to understand leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is not from Levitical, like from the Levitical law, because this is going to be listed out for you in Deuteronomy 25. You can read all about this. But the leveret marriage, leveret is is from the Latin lever, which literally means brother-in-law. In uh, in Hebrew, it's yibam, right? And and the leveret law works like this. If If you marry a man and that man dies, and there are no children, then you're supposed to marry the next oldest son. And the reason, just get this, because we look at Old Testament law sometimes, we go, Old Testament law was stupid. It doesn't make any sense. There's a reason. we. No, 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 stop that. When you read Old Testament law, what is the heart of God? That's how you read Old Testament law. What is the heart of God? The heart of God here is this, that if a man dies and his wife has no heirs, She's in dire straits. It's not going to go well for her. She's going to be abused. She's going to be, they're property. And so God is saying, I will provide for her and there will be security for her. And she's to marry the next brother, preferably the oldest of the next brother. And not only that, but here's where the inheritance comes in. For instance, if Tamar were to marry Onan, well then Onan is to marry Tamar and their first son that they have is to receive the inheritance of the older brother Ur. That's the way this is supposed to work. It provides security and and safety for the widow and the inheritance will go on. Well, guess what? Ur was a really, really wicked man and so God took him. And so what happens? So now Onan marries Tamar. But here's where this story gets really wonky, okay? So Onan has this figured out. This dude has done the math, okay? And Onan says, if I marry her and I give her a son, 
That son gets the inheritance of his father, of her first husband, and there's less inheritance for me. And so Onan's not going to do it. And so he, he marries her, but we're told in the scripture that he would lay with her, and time after time he did this, and he, he would just spill his seed. Merry Christmas. And so he's not going to do it. And so he's just saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Okay, then there's this really interesting custom in the Jewish faith because God is so serious about this and he's not playing games. And so God, they have a thing in the Jewish, in the Jewish law called halitza. And halitza says this, that if that's the case, then he, she is supposed to go to the town elders and say, he's, he's not going to provide a child for me. And then the town elders call him in and they're going to talk to him. And he just says, nah, I'm not going to do the honorable thing. Then what she is supposed to do, halitza means to remove she, in front of the town elders, she removes his sandal, which is dishonorable because the feet are exposed. She removes his sandal, she spits on the ground, and then she says, may this guy's household be known as the household who bruised the one who would not provide, whose shoe has been removed. Like, that was a major disgrace. You are majorly disgraced. Okay, Onan won't provide a child her. And so because of his wickedness, because God said, I, listen, this is why we do food in the hood. This is why we try to take care of homeless. This is why you all bring gifts and food and things like that for Veep. Because God's heart is concerned for the downtrodden, and the disadvantaged and the homeless. That, that's the heart of God. It's not just some like, hey, this is a great thing we should. No, it's the heart of God. Onan will not provide for her. And so God is so disappointed in Onan that he takes his life. Well, now that means Tamar should marry Shelah. Okay, stop. Now Judah gets involved. And Judah says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now in his head, Judah is thinking this. I'm not that connected to Tamar anymore. And my, my youngest son, Shelah, is going to produce a child for her. And they're going to get up all the inheritance. Judah's like, no, nah, I'm not going to have it. That's what he thinks in his head. What he says out loud is this. Hey, Tamar. You know, Shayla's really young. Let's just do this. Why don't you go back home and you go on up back up home to your folks? You just hang with your folks a while. Let Shayla grow up a little bit. When Shayla's ready, I'm going to send for you. Okay? Well, so Tamar does. Tamar goes up home and she's with her home folks for a while and she's gone through some grieving and she's gone through mourning. Now it's not much longer. And Judah's wife dies. Judah's wife passes on. Well, so now he grieves and he mourns and he's dressed in his grieving clothes and in his mourning clothes. And eventually that, that time is over and he takes off his mourning clothes and he's kind of getting back to life. Up north in Timnah, he has a buddy and his buddy's name is Hira. And Hira has a lot of herds and it's shearing season. And so Judah says, you know, I'm kind of getting back to life. I'm going to go up north to Timnah. I'm going to hang out with Hira. We're going to do some sheep shearing. You know, we're going to talk about our high school days and our college days. We're going to reconnect. We're going to do all of that. And so he does. He goes, well, he's getting ready to, and Tamar catches wind of it. She knows that Judah is going to go up to Timnah. Judah has already, Tamar has already figured this out. Judah's not going to set, set me up with, she, with Shelah. That's not going to happen. He has no intention of looking out for me, which he's supposed to do by Jewish law. He's supposed to, and he's not going to. This is where the story gets even weirder. So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. She covers her head, she covers her face, she wouldn't be recognizable, and she goes and she sits out on the road that is on the way to Timnah. Okay, now here comes Judah. Judah's walking along, and he sees her sitting there. He knows she's a prostitute. She's dressed like a prostitute. Judah's walking along, and so he says to her in Hebrew, kind of that, and so he now, 
propositions her. He propositions her. And she says, well, what are you going to pay me? And I think we all know this. One goat. Yeah, that's the price. It's a goat. And so she says, well, you don't have a goat with you. What are you going to give me as a guarantee that I'm getting this goat? And he says, well, what do you want me to give you? And she says, well, give me your staff and give me your... It's a cord that they would carry that would kind of identify who they are. She said, give me those. He says, okay. So he has this out-of-marriage sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law, and he doesn't know it's her. He leaves. She gets pregnant by her father-in-law. Okay? So, so now, about three months later, Judah finds out about it. And they say, hey, Judah, guess what? Your daughter-in-law who's no longer married, is pregnant. Get ready for this Jewish law. He says, you bring her to me and we'll burn her. So she sends the staff and this cord, she sends those by messenger to Judah. And she says, uh, hey, Judah, this is, these are the belongings of the man who impregnated me. I don't know if you know who this would be. <laughs> now listen to me. Judah knows he's done wrong. Not because, actually, get, get a load of this, not because he had sexual relationships with her so much, but because he failed to take care of her. He failed to provide for her. He failed to assure her of any security. And in fact, these are Judah's words. Judah says, she, the one who dressed up like a prostitute, is actually more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. Now, just stop for a minute. This is a Jewish writer, Matthew, who's writing the family ancestry of Jesus to let us know not only where the Messiah came from, but what kind of Messiah this might be. That's interesting stuff. Okay, don't worry. Go on to the next verse in the genealogy. <laughs> Judah, then, was the father of Perez and Zerah. She had twins. And they're the children of Judah by Tamar. This is listed. This stuff is listed. A Jewish audience would have been, ooh, ooh, Tamar, not good. Right? Not only Tamar, but Judah, because Judah didn't provide for her. Then the, then the genealogy goes on. It says, by the way, in verse 5, Simon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And again, it's a patriarchal culture. Why are you throwing in information about women? That would be unusual. Well, the question is, who is Rahab? Just so you know, Rahab didn't dress up like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. Very interesting. So you know this, that the, the Israelites were down and they were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. After they'd been 400 years, God sends Moses. Moses leads them out. Remember this? They go across the Red Sea. They wander. They go to Mount Sinai. They wander in the desert for four, 40 years. Now they're just about ready to re-enter the Promised Land. They're just on the east side of the Jordan River, which kind of separates the nation of Israel. And the first town in there is Jericho. And Joshua is now leading the Israelites. And Joshua is saying, man, we're about to go into the promised land. It probably won't be long. And we're going to be doing battle with the, with the people of Jericho. So what does he do? So Joshua, it says, secretly sent two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed the spies, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. Like, you've got to go see what Jericho's like. What are their defenses? Like, how do they operate? What are these people like? Are they a mighty people? You've you got to go find that out. So Rahab goes in, and, and, and she, or rather the spies go in, and the first person that they meet there when they go into her house is they meet Rahab, 
they go in and, and uh, she knows that she, very quickly she knows that these are Israelites. They've all heard about the Israelites. The Israelites are clearly coming. And so somebody tells the king. The king tells a couple of his henchmen. The henchmen then go to Rahab's door and they knock on the door. Rahab has already sent the men up on top of the roof and she's buried them kind of under some flax that she's been gathering. They're up there. These henchmen come and they say, hey, we know those Israelite men are here. Turn them over to us. We're about to take them. We're going to teach those boys a lesson. And she said, oh, they were here all right. They've already left. So these henchmen, they take off. They go off looking for them, right? A few days later, the Israelite spies, they leave. Then the passage tells us this. The two men set out and they came to the house of the prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there that night. And now, as they're heading back, it says, the men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. The Israelites eventually went in and destroyed Jericho and they had victory. And this tells us that they spared Rahab because of Rahab's goodness to them. They spared Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. Now here's where this whole story gets really, really interesting. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a hall of fame, any kind of hall of fame, raise your hand. doesn't matter what, any kind of hall of fame, raise your hand. Okay, there's all kinds of halls of fame, right? There's a baseball, football, basketball, there's the major halls of fame. There's the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood. There's the Country Music, anybody been to the Country Music Hall of Fame, Nashville, Tennessee, there you go. There's the National Cowgirl Museum Hall of Fame. Anybody been there? Fort Worth, Texas, anybody? This is my favorite one. Yes, this is my favorite one. The RV and Motorhome Hall of Fame, Elkhart, Indiana, salute. Anybody been there? That's my favorite one. Listen, there's all kinds of halls of fame. There's also a faith hall of fame. And some of you might be, might be familiar with this. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 shows us the faith hall of fame. It talks about people like Abel, who brought a sacrifice by faith, brought a sacrifice more pleasing than his brother Cain. It talks about Enoch. By faith, Enoch believed. And God took him. He, he never died. God just took him up. It talks about by faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. Noah built an ark. What's an ark? I don't know. I'm just building this. God told me to build it for the flood, for the rain. What's that? I don't know. By faith. Okay, when you get to verse 31 in the Faith Hall of Fame, look at this. It was by faith that Rahab... The prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She's not even just listed in the genealogy of Jesus. She's in the Faith Hall of Fame. A prostitute. Question, what kind of Messiah? Like when you see his genealogy, what inkling, what does this start to tell you about the Messiah? Let me give you one more. It says, Samuel was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, we read, just read that. Boaz then was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, patriarchal culture. Why are we interjecting females into this? What's the significance of this? Now, Ruth, when you read the story of Ruth, and some of you read it in the book of Ruth, we go, oh, but Ruth, she's so wonderful. And she was good to Naomi, and she was, she was just befriended her. So let me just say this. She's, she didn't dress like a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. Worse. She's a Moabite. Now you all go, I don't get it. What's a Moabite? 
Let me explain uh, Moabites to you and see if this rings, uh, makes any sense to you. We know about Abraham. Abraham had a, a nephew named Lot. So Abraham left the land of Ur when God called him. Abraham worshipped the moon god. He did not know God until God called him. He worshipped the moon god. Abraham, God says, I want you to go far away. And, and they were going to go up north to Haran, which might be in Syria today, before they went down to the promised land. He leaves Ur with his father Terah and his nephew Lot. They go up to Haran, right? They're there for a little while. Eventually, they go down into Shechem, which is inside the promised land. And Abraham says, hey, here's the deal. You've got too many herds, and I've got too many herds, and our herds are fighting for, for food, and our herdsmen are now fighting each other. We need to split up. Abraham, out of the goodness of his heart, says, look, brother, look over the land. Just look over the valley. You look at whatever is good to you, and you go there, and I'll go the opposite direction. Lot looks out over Sodom, a very wicked city, and over the valley, and it's plush green, plush green, plush green. He's, he's a, he's a, this guy's a herdsman. He's like, that's where I'm going. Takes his animals, heads that way. Abraham heads the other way. We read about Lot that he went toward Sodom, the wicked, wicked, wicked city. The next time we read about Lot, he is living in Sodom, the wicked, wicked city. And the next time you see Lot in the scripture, he's at the city gate. Translation, he's hanging out with the movers and the shakers of the most wicked city of their day. Well, the place is getting so wicked, God says, I've got to destroy that place. I've given them time. I've given them time. I've given them time. They're not changing. I'm going to destroy that place. He sends an angel to Lot. And he says to Lot, listen, you got to get your family. He's got two daughters. They're both married. you got to get your family. you got to get your wife. you got to get out of here. Lot says this. He's like, mm, it's not so bad here. The angel says, no, no, no. you got to go far away. you got to get to the mountains. you got to get out of here. He's like, the mountains are kind of far. There's a cute little town over here called Zor. Could I just go to Zor? Cute, cute little town. And the angel says, okay, but you got to fly now. Just go. Lot takes his two daughters. The husbands didn't go. Lot takes his two daughters. And you remember, some of you know the story of his wife. His wife was on the go. The angel said, don't look back. She looked back, and God turned her into a pillar of salt. I don't know exactly what that means, but she was killed. She was destroyed because she couldn't leave her wickedness. She wanted to stay and hold on to her wickedness. Lot, meanwhile, and his daughters head up to this town called Zoar. And then we pick this up in Genesis 19. Afterward, Lot left Zoar now. He's been in Zoar a little while because he was afraid of the people there. When you're really close to wickedness, the people who are also really close to wickedness tend to be really wicked people. And so he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. Now watch the daughters start doing some math. It says, one day the older daughter said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in this entire area. So we can't get married like everyone else. Now watch the next jump she makes. And also, our father will soon be too old to have children. Come on. She says, come, let's get him drunk with wine. And then we'll have sex with our father. That way we'll preserve our family line through our father. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. And when the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. Moab was the father of the Moabites. So when you put that in the genealogy, first century Jewish readers would have gone, wait a minute, Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. Those are nasty, wicked people. You remember the nasty story about Lot and his daughters? That's immediately what they would have thought of. It's in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, just think for yourself. Wouldn't it be cool if you got your family tree, you did ancestry or some, whatever the things are, and you find your family, and you look at it, and you're like, look at that, Abraham Lincoln, look at that, Dr. King, look at that, George Washington. You just think, Billy and Ruth Graham, like those are in your family tree. And in all honesty, Jesus keeps looking back at his family tree going, 
Bonnie and Clyde, this did not, <laughs> like that's who he keeps seeing in, in the family tree. And that's what's communicated to us. That is. And just so you know this, just so you don't think I'm picking on the girls, we should make this point. Yeah, we talked about Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Listen, Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. He's the father of Jews. Do you know that there were two instances when God had already called him and had sent him? And God said, hey, I'm going to take care of you. I'm doing everything. There were two times where Abraham got kind of scared. And so what's he do? He says to the people he's confronting about his wife. His wife is standing right there and he's like, uh, this is my sister. You can have her. Not once, twice. The father of our faith, he repented, right? Look at Judah. We talked about Judah wouldn't provide for his daughter-in-law. We talk about David. David is the king of the Jews. And if you talk to any Jew, he's the greatest king in Israel's history. He was described as, finish this for you, a man after, a man after God's own heart. We talk about the fact that David had an inappropriate relationship. He saw Uriah, he saw Bathsheba up on the rooftop and he saw her bathing and he sent his men for her. Listen to me. Don't think for a second that he had an inappropriate sexual relationship with her. He raped her. When the king sends two men to your door, they're not asking you to come. When you get to the king's place and he propositions you, he's not asking. But we read in Psalm 51 where David repented. He confessed sin. He repented. He's called a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And you go, well, that's in a day when that was kind of the custom. You're right, it was. And God had told him, not for my people. You will not live like this. And Solomon did it anyway. Solomon got to the end of his life and he repented. He turned. You see King Ahaz, and a lot of people don't know who King Ahaz is. There was a point in time where the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. It was one nation, Israel. There were two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Judah went through this weird thing where every other king, good, wicked, good, wicked, good, wicked. Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings that Israel had ever had. He became king at 20. He reigned for about four to six years with his father, and then about another 16 years by himself. He reigned in total for 20 years, and he did some of the most evil and wicked things that a king had ever done. He totally, continually defiled the temple. There was idol worship, just totally sacrilegious thing. He sacrificed his own children inside the temple, which had become a practice. He was largely responsible for the total destruction of the temple. And he's in the family tree of Jesus. What does it tell us about this Jesus? What does it tell us about this Messiah? Here's what this says. And just soak on this for a little while. Our God is a God of compassion. Our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God who says, not only does your past not define you, it also does not disqualify you. And the reason I think it's so appropriate, because I know a lot of folks, you come back to church at Christmas time, you go, I'll pop in, it's Christmas time. Maybe some of you grew up in the church, and you just went, I'm sick and tired of the church. And maybe you've done some things. Maybe you're one of those people who's, who's maybe done some things, and you have this history, and you have this past. And you're like, I think the God thing is kind of cool, but here's the reality. God could never accept me. You don't know what I've done, Neil. You don't know my story. You don't know some of the things. I've done some horrific things. And I go, Really? Like, that's the line of our Messiah. That's the line of our Messiah. 
We, we serve a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness. One of my favorite Bible verses in the whole world is 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9, it's really simple. It just says this. It's just very matter of fact. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we just confess. Confession means to agree with. It's when we go to God and we say, God, you pointed that out to me, and I got to acknowledge that was sin. That was wrong. That was sinful. It doesn't say if we grovel. It doesn't say if we bow our heads and walk in shame. It doesn't say if we, if we just act like we're a piece of dirt, if we tell everybody a piece of dirt. It says if we confess. Why? Because our God is a God of compassion. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God who says, confess your sin to me, and then just repent, repent. Turn the other way. You've got you, you, to walk in obedience. Turn the other way. And so you might be somebody here this morning, and you say, you, you might be a follower of Jesus this morning, but you walk in that condition where you hang your head all the time because you think, well, I've sinned, and now God can't accept me, and, and God will let me go to church, but, but, but God's not happy with me. He's angry with me. And I'm like, oh. You don't know the God that we've been studying about this morning. You don't know the God that's in the Gospels. You, you don't understand that God. Some of you have no relationship with God and you've stayed distant because of something you've done. And you're like, I'd like to do the God thing. I'd like to be in a relationship with God, but you don't know what I've done. I'm like, well, you don't know our God. You don't know the God of the Bible. You know a God that some people have talked about. You know a God that's in your head, but you actually don't know and you don't understand who the God of the Bible is. God of compassion, God of grace. If there's any doubt in your mind, if there's any doubt in your mind about what kind of God we serve, listen, the gospel writers, we said, all wrote a different, to kind of a different intended audience. And, and John, the disciple John, wrote the gospel of John. He was the closest friend of Jesus. Now, remember this. Nobody, when they wrote the scriptures, nobody was writing during the, the life of Jesus. Nobody was writing about him. Nobody was like, ooh, what did he say? I got to get that down. That was really good. Nobody was doing that. And then Jesus died and they all thought, it's over. We were idiots, how could we follow this guy? And then three days later, the tomb was empty and they went, wait a minute. It's exactly what he said. And now they all go back and now they start writing down. And Luke says that I went and talked to everybody and I investigated carefully to give you a careful order of everything. John was Jesus' closest friend. This is how John, in chapter one, John starts describing Jesus and he calls him the word of God, the logos of God, the essence of God. He is God incarnate. He is God come to us. And John in his gospel says this, the word, this is Jesus. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? That's Jesus, he says. And he says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And he could have stopped there. He could have just said that about Jesus and all of that is accurate. And John just, he's so close to Jesus and he wants you and I, because John is writing into perpetuity for future generations. John wants us to know who this Jesus is. And so he doesn't stop there and he puts in the most interesting descriptive phrase of Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now it's both, it's both. But John makes sure that he mentions grace and he says it first. Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God of compassion. If you're there this morning, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not, whether you call yourself a church person or not, you need to hear this. Listen, just everybody listen to me for one second. Just dial in for a minute. Our God is a God of grace. Nothing can disqualify you from a relationship 
with the creator of the universe. Listen to me, nothing, nothing can disqualify you from a relationship with the very creator of the universe. If you're newer here, we always get to the end. We like to have what I call the big so what. And the big so what is simply this. The God who gave us Christmas is the God who gives us grace. The same God who sent his own son so that you and I could be made right with him, so that you and I could have a relationship with him. That God, that same God is the God who gives us grace. I don't know what your story is. I know my own issues. I got plenty of them. I know that sometimes I have a tendency to feel like that, like, ugh. God's just gonna turn his back, God's done. It's just not true. Sometimes it's a human way that we think. It's not a God thought. Our God is a God of grace. And so in your your bulletin, you have a big now what? And the big now what is really simple, like what do we do with this? Take the next step, move toward God. What would be the next step for you to move toward God? Because maybe you're here and you're just keeping distant from God because you think God's ticked because you think God's the angry God who's just mad at you. You're waiting to get zapped with a lightning bolt. Now we know that's actually not true. My question is this, what's your next step? How would you move toward God next? Maybe you need to talk to somebody. Maybe you need to go right to God and talk. Maybe you need to pray about this. Maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe you say, well, I keep confessing sin. Well, maybe you need to repent. You need to walk away from your sin. Head the other direction. Don't repeat it. Maybe you need to pray with someone about that. Hey, here's where I'm at. Ask God for forgiveness. I know God has forgiven me. I'm still struggling with this sin. I need to repent. Can you help me? Can you pray with me? Like, what's your next step? Maybe your next step is you need to return to church. You've been away for so long, you thought, I'll pop in for one week. Maybe, maybe you need to begin a regular pattern. You need to hang out with other people who think like you think who are living the way you wanna live. Maybe you need to find a mentor. Maybe you need to find someone to disciple you. You need to seriously say to someone, hey, this is where I'm at. Would you ever consider meeting with me and just kind of helping disciple me? Maybe that's your next step. See, I don't know what your next step is. But now that we know who this God is and what kind of God he is, who this Messiah is, what kind of Messiah this is, then our job is this take the next step forward. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the revelation of who you are. We thank you for your your servant, Matthew, and for what he's recorded for us. And it's so helpful for us to see this is really the heart of God. This is who you are. And we hear so much from other people false ideas about who you are. And we have our own human thoughts false ideas often about who you are. But God, this morning you revealed yourself to us. You revealed it to us, God. Your Holy Spirit, that's your Holy Spirit revealing that to us. That you're a God who says, your past does not define you. Your past does not disqualify you. Your past doesn't prevent you from coming to me. It's just an an odd thought. The creator of the universe, the all-powerful one, the eternal God who's always been, that creator desires a relationship with you. He wants it so bad that he sent his only son to die for you. And so this morning, I'm praying that you'll listen to the Holy Spirit. 